Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. We're here today with Professor Lou DeMarco who's a full professor of military history at the Department of Military History. Glad to have you with us. And glad to be here. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background, about your education. Uh, so I, uh, my undergraduate education uh, was at the U.S. Military Academy, uh, where at the time uh, was an engineering-only school. Uh, but you could, uh, you could uh, concentrate in other fields, so I... Uh, got a general engineering degree, and I concentrated in uh, history, uh, mostly because uh, history, you could get an A in history, and I could get a B minus in engineering, and so it helped my GPA out quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, no shame there. And uh, and then I went 10 years without uh, going back to school, uh, and uh, I started a master's program uh, in international relations uh, through Salve Regina University, and then I was picked up to come here uh, for the Command and General Staff College. So while I was here, I did an MMAS in history. And then when I finished uh, here at CGSC, I went back to uh, Salve Regina and picked up uh, MA in international relations. And then uh, a bunch of years went by again while I was in the Army. And, uh, and then a couple years before I finished with the Army, uh, K-State, uh, started to get into distance, not distance education, but um, uh, remote education, so they would have the class in uh, in place at K-State, and they would telelink to us here at, uh, at uh, CGSC at uh, Fort Leavenworth. And so it wasn't distance education. We were part of the live class and we were on TV, and we participated, and uh, the only difference was we weren't physically in the classroom. And, we, and they started that program, but I ended up doing more than half of my coursework uh, for my Ph.D. at K-State uh, in the classroom, and then, uh, and then finished up with a dissertation, and, and that was the last of my formal education. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your uh, research interests. Okay, well, um, I was originally interested in uh, all things cavalry, military history cavalry, uh, because that was my background in the Army, and uh, also uh, I have a horse farm and uh, have have had horses for the last 30-plus years that I've been married. I married into a horse farm. And, uh, but... Uh, and so my master's thesis was on uh, mechanized cavalry and the changeover from mechanized from horse to mechanized during World War II. But uh, at K-State, anyway, uh, they strongly discourage doing uh, a master's uh, dissertation or a PhD in the same area. They want you to have two different, uh, completely different fields. So uh, at the time, I was working in the Army on urban operations and I decided I would do an urban operations related field and, uh, and I would focus on post-conflict operations in major German cities after World War II. 
And so I wrote that as my proposal, got approved. I wrote the first chapter of my dissertation. And the first chapter of my dissertation was a summary history of civil affairs up till World War II. And my professor said, uh, that's your dissertation. And uh, that first chapter then got broken up and became 10 chapters on essentially the history of, post, of the U.S. Army and post-conflict occupations uh, from the Civil War through uh, the occupations of Germany and Japan. Um, and so, you know, uh, my main interest still is in urban operations, and, and most of my publication has been in the area of combat urban operations, but uh, I probably have uh, a really, you know, strong background in uh, military occupation, civil affairs, and military government as well. Okay. Uh, tell us what you teach here at CGSC in addition to the core and AOC courses. Okay. Well, uh, I've taught a lot of different things because I've been here a long time. Uh, the, uh, when, I, when I came to the college and since then, so for, for 20 years or so, I have taught uh, electives in urban operations. Uh, I call it uh, history of modern urban operations because it begins with World War II, although there's always an introductory part where we talk about uh, evolution of cities through, uh, through history and the importance of cities historically to warfare. Uh, but really it focuses, begins with Stalingrad and um, and then as each year goes on, we kind of expand the course. So originally it ended, uh, when I originally started teaching it in like 2003 or so, it ended with uh, uh, the uh, Israeli operations in uh, the occupied uh, territories in 2002. But since then, uh, it includes uh, lessons on uh, the U.S. Army in Iraq, and most recently we've added lessons on um, on uh, the Iraqi army uh, in Mosul in 2017. So, uh, so now the course covers from 2000 or from 1942 uh, through 2017, uh, looking at themes that are consistent through that entire period, and uh, as well as uh, changes that have occurred over time. Although I think the the the, uh, the theme of the course is that. There's not much uh, that we don't know that history hasn't already taught us about uh, major combat operations in an urban area. It's just we don't know what we know. And uh, other courses I've taught, for a long time uh, here, we didn't have a Middle East expert in the, on the faculty, so, I, so especially in the early 2000s, uh, that was a huge hole. And so for about five or six years, I taught the elective on warfare in the Middle East, uh, roots of conflict in the Middle East. Uh, that has since been turned over to guys who are Arab and Middle East specialists, uh, but it's a great course, and I learned a lot just teaching that. And I've taught, uh, uh, as time permitted, courses on uh, mobility and warfare uh, and the constant uh, role of horse cavalry and then mechanized forces, how that uh, transitioned. And I have also taught courses on uh, occupation operations uh, in American military history, beginning with the Civil War, kind of following along the theme of my dissertation, looking at the Civil War. Uh, uh, Army's civil and administrative responsibilities for Native Americans, uh, 
the Spanish-American War, occupation of Cuba, occupation of the Philippines, op- occupation of Puerto Rico, uh, World War I, occupation of the Rhineland, uh, studying how the Army has studied civil affairs, and then in uh, and, and, uh, that course talked about uh, the occupations of Italy, uh, Germany, and Japan at the end of World War II, or during and the end of World War II. So, uh, so a pretty broad spectrum of different subjects. Okay, very good. In, in terms of kind of the platonic ideal of war, I, I think a lot of people tend to think of war as happening on a battlefield away from a city. So what makes the city both unique and difficult as a battle space? Well, cities have been um, the subject of warfare since warfare is recorded. So uh, the uh, uh, Kaddish in modern-day Syria is the first battle that we have enough information to write military history about uh, between the uh, Hittites and the Egyptian uh, armies, uh, chariot-based armies. But what was the the battle takes uh, place outside the city of Kadesh, and the battle is for control. Now it didn't happen in the city, but uh, the city was the objective, and uh, and that is a theme that runs uh, constant through all military history. Uh, in fact, one of the points I make uh, in my courses is that battles in the open field are in the big stretch of military history, the exception rather than the rule, and that you'd only see battles in the open field become to be dominant in the era of Napoleon. And then by World War I, that really starts to go away. Now, World War I is an aberration because of trench warfare, but then when you get to World War II, it looks like in the beginning of the war that uh, World War II is going to be a battle of you know, armored maneuver forces. Um, but by 1942, the, uh, although there's still a lot of maneuver and stuff, uh, what are the objectives and where do the decisive battles occur? Around cities. Uh, so, you know, on the Western Front, it's Aachen, it's Metz, uh, it's the, you know, when you look at an operation like uh, Market Garden, uh, Market Gardens was, was designed to capture bridges, but guess where those bridges were? Every one of those bridges is associated with the city. And on the Eastern Front, it's the same thing. Uh, the pivotal points where the Germans hold or break are, are the cities on the Eastern Front, although the Eastern Front, because of the maneuver spaces, is a little different. What's really unusual is then when you start to look post-World War II, you find the same phenomenon occurring. Uh, you know, the Korean War revolves around uh, Seoul, uh, which is taken and lost three times. and. Uh, and then Vietnam War, although everybody thinks of jungles and, you know, uh, uh, LZs, uh, the decisive battles are in Saigon and Hue in 1968. And uh, the Tet Offensive is all about capturing cities and urban areas. And ultimately, the North Vietnamese Offensive in 1975 is about capturing the South Vietnamese urban areas. Uh, and then move on from there. Uh, you know, the. <laughs> And his, military history can be deceiving because uh, we tend to then go, well, look at Desert Storm. It's in the middle of a desert. And look at Iraq. It's, you know, or not Iraq, uh, Afghanistan. It's in the middle of wherever, uh, you know, uh, Central Asia. And cities aren't, don't appear to be that important. But why did you fight Desert Storm? Well, uh, Desert Storm was all about Kuwait City. Uh, the big move in the desert was to secure force the Iraqis out of Kuwait City and 
Uh, and in the Iraq War, OIF, uh, where is all the fighting happening? It's in the cities of Iraq. And ultimately, even Afghanistan. When Afghanistan falls apart this summer, where does it fall apart? In the battle for the Afghani, uh, Afghanistani uh, urban areas. So, uh, you know, that period where the two armies meet on an open battlefield uh, for about 100 years or so, that's the exception. Uh, one of, I think, the quotes I remember seeing was Marlborough, the great uh, British uh, battle captain, uh, fought 25 major battles, uh, and only two of them were in the open field. The rest were sieges uh, for major cities. So to me, you know, we are back to the future, uh, or, you know, finally maybe addressing uh, the history, military history, the, the actual military history, as opposed to what uh, generals like to think of as the popular, you know, preferred battlefield uh, in the open field. Mm-hmm. Oh, excellent. And I'll ask you kind of another myth-busting question. Um, again, the kind of the, the platonic ideal of, of American military history is battles, campaigns, um, but you have pointed out something very important about American military history, which is that there's just as many occupations in places we might think of as occupations like Reconstruction, but also places like Puerto Rico. So where do you think that side of American military history fits in kind of the story of the American military? I think uh, that's really, until World War II, uh, that aspect of military operations was more important, or as important at least, as uh, combat operations. Um, I focus on military occupations and uh, post-conflict. Uh, stuff and so I start with the Civil War because obviously Reconstruction is this major experience with uh, occupation or post-conflict operations. But um, uh, developing policies for Native Americans, exploration uh, as an adjunct to military operations is a big part of the Army's mission throughout the 19th century. Uh, more than well, more than 50 percent of the mapping of of the frontier is done by. Uh, the U.S. Army, and uh, uh, and uh, almost all of the significant U.S. Army leaders have um, experience, vast experience, uh, with uh, occupations, post-conflict operations, and military civil operations, and the Army is really comfortable in that area until you get to World War II, uh, well, including World War II. Uh, General Marshall, uh, his first assignment in the Army when he graduate, after graduating from VMI in 1903 is he uh, travels to the Philippines and they drop him off at a small island uh, with his infantry platoon is already there and, and the war had just ended. The insurrection part of the war had ended in 1902 and they tell him, you're in charge. And his uh, local counterpart is the parish priest and he's a second lieutenant, and he has no idea what he's doing. Forty years later, Chief of Staff uh, of the Army, General Marshall, uh, is quoted uh, saying, in 1903, I was dropped off in the Philippines and put in charge of an island, and I had no idea what I was doing. That will not happen in the U.S. Army in at the end of World War II. And because of that experience, we built Marshall 
built a robust uh, military government capacity in the World War II Army. Uh, Marshall was comfortable, uh, understood that mission, and was comfortable with it. MacArthur, uh, as much as he had other failings, was very comfortable in that role. His father had been the military governor of the Philippines. Uh, both Marshall and uh, and uh, and uh, MacArthur had served in the military of the occupation of Germany. Uh, both had served extensive experience with the civil governance of and the relationship between the military and the Philippines in the 19 uh, pre World War One and in the 1920s. And so that era of leaders, starting with the Civil War in particular. Uh, Sherman, uh, not so much Sherman, because he was not a civil government guy, but Sheridan had no trouble involving himself in, in civil affairs and military government. Grant was a powerful advocate of that, and, uh, and their legacy through the Indian Wars uh, and then into, uh, if you want to call them, the Spanish-American War and the Philippine Insurrection, and then on into World War I, all of the senior leaders. Pershing had a phenomenal uh, uh, experience in the Philippines, both as a military governor and as a as a negotiator with the indigenous populations on Mindanao, uh, uh, right after the war formally ended, and uh, and so these guys were very comfortable with that uh, experience and that role for the army, and that reflects then later. Uh, all, you know, my 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 point is that in World War II, um, the reason we do so well. Uh, in the occupation of Germany, Japan, uh, and Italy is because the leaders, A, understood it was important, B, were comfortable in that role, and, uh, and, and C, prepared the army uh, deliberately for that role. There's a huge fight in the Roosevelt administration in 1942 uh, into 43 over who's going to be in charge, the army or the State Department. And ultimately, the tiebreaker is Eisenhower and Operation Torch, where as the theater commander in North Africa, he is forced to deal politically with the Vichy French, uh, and he needs the authority uh, to, to speak for the whole U.S. government, even though he's the military commander. And ultimately, uh, Stimson, who also has a huge background, uh, the Secretary of War, uh, comes in strong uh, in favor of the Army controlling civil military affairs in World War II. Stimson, who was the colonial governor of, uh, had been the Secretary of State and the colonial governor of the Philippines and knew all of those leaders, Leonard Wood and Pershing personally, uh, uh, and, uh, and Bliss, all military governors in the Philippines, knew all of those guys intimately, uh, came out strongly backing Eisenhower, as did Marshall, and that convinced FDR to give that role to the Army. Uh, and uh, I think the results of uh, post-war Europe, uh, the, you know, not so much the Marshall Plan, although the Marshall Plan, because that's a State Department uh, project, but the post-war occupation results, uh, Italy, Germany, and Japan, uh, all uh, speak to not perfect occupations, but, but occupations that ultimately are successful. All right, very good. Thank you for joining us today, okay. Dr. Marco. Okay, thank you for having me. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.